Hey, Kara, I feel like a cat's ass. <laughs> so that's really specific. <laughs> so why a cat versus a dog or a cow? I don't know. Because cats leave dirty cat boxes and my mouth feels like I've been sucking on a cat turd or something like that. That would be because you had to catch a red eye back from Seattle, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. We were in the very last session. We, meaning you and I. And meaning Joe me Weaver. was not there because right, of Because you had the flu. Health. And Sarah Myrie uh, from Warm Regards. We did a, a workshop on how to advance your career through podcasting for the American Association for the Advancement of Science annual workshop in Seattle. And except for you having the flu and not being able to join us, it went well. Yay, that's really exciting. I definitely had some FOMO of not being able to go, but I figured I should be a responsible citizen and not get on a plane yeah. <laughs> and infect everybody with what nastiness I was dealing with and I'm still dealing with. I'm wearing two shirts. Do you know how rare that is for me? Don't you usually bundle up because you keep your house at like 50 degrees? But I'm in my office and it's 70.6 degrees Uh-oh. in my office and I'm doubling up. That's how yeah. I feel. But so that AAAS thing was all about podcasting and how to build your network and get people excited about what it is you do. And interestingly, our guest today is the first person, at least that I can think of or can remember, who contacted us about the podcast wanting to be on. That's really exciting because I think a lot of folks are really kind of reticent about doing the public engagement side and really looking to promote themselves which is weird to me because when I worked in the entertainment industry, bands and entertainers are always seeking or have someone who seeks on their behalf to promote what they do. And academics, obviously we are a different animal in many respects and have a sort of different focus and internal focus, Mm -hmm. but public engagement really is all about turning it outward and not just selling yourself, but trying to start conversations about why what you do may be relevant, or you're trying to find a good access point to interact with the public in a Mm -hmm. way that's constructive for both you and for them. And so it it does take effort. It does. Uh, And it was really serendipitous with this one. So our guest today is Pablo Nepomanchi, and hopefully I didn't butcher his last name too much. And this is going to be part of our academic series, which is really nice. And This also came out of something that my grad student asked for. So my graduate student, Alexander Niklou, is, she's not a U.S. citizen. She's from Luxembourg. And I was chatting with her about the podcast and about academics. And I asked her, you know, is there something you would like to hear about? And one thing that she explicitly said was advice for international students navigating PhD programs in the United States. And also just navigating life in the United States when you haven't really lived here all that long. And Pablo happens to be the international rep for the Human Biology Association. And so when he contacted me asking, hey, I want to be on your podcast, I you know, said, would you mind speaking to this? And he was super excited about it because not only is he the international rep, but he was once an international student and he's also mentored international students. So we were able to bring on somebody completely unexpectedly without even trying, who's going to be able to speak to a whole host of issues that we want to discuss in academics. That's perfect. As grad director, I have several international students applying to come here, and that level of mentoring is beyond me, so I can't wait to hear what he has to suggest. 
Hi, Kara. Hi, Chris. How are you? I'm doing great. Good. We're Hi. trying to figure out if you're at Simon Fraser or Simon Fraser University. Uh, I am in both. <laughs> Is there a particular pronunciation? I believe that both are correct. I'm a non-native English speaker, so I couldn't know. I believe that people here prefer the Simon Fraser University. Anyway, Pablo, welcome to the Sausage of Science, and thank you so much for taking some time to chat with us today. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate you allowing me to participate in this fantastic initiative that you guys have. Wonderful. Awesome. I guess maybe we'll start with the second question that we sent you first, because we kind of brought it up. You have done something no one has done, and we always want them to do, which is to contact us and ask to be on the show, because... You know, we have a limited number of people that we know to, to ask on, and we are always busy and not always thinking of people we should. So what prompted you to do that? I'm an egomaniac. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is true, but, but there, is, there is a more complex and socially acceptable response. <laughs> so it has to do with, with other issues that we talked and maybe we'll talk later about, but I am going through yet another career transformation. And I'm very aware these days of the social responsibility that we scientists have with society as a whole. I always thought knowledge translation was critically important. And at this very, very moment, I think it's even more important than ever. And there are several issues that I think need to be discussed, both for our discipline, as well as for our society. I'm a very extroverted person. I studied theater when I was a teenager. I really enjoy communicating. And after I heard a couple of your podcasts, I thought this was a good platform hmm. to discuss those issues. Hmm. Particularly, I feel that, like many of us, when we talk journalists, we are trying to convey information and, in some cases, a message that gets distorted because of the agendas of those journalists or because of their marketing strategies. And because you guys are colleagues, I feel that this conversation will be more straightforward and accurate. We are definitely not trying to mince or twist words in any way here. But I mean, the whole thing is, is we bring you on so you can say it in your own words without us filtering it for you, like say a journalist might to fit some sort of agenda that their editor wants them to do. So yeah, absolutely. So thank you. You totally got we, the point of what it is we're trying to do here. Yeah, it's, it's funny. That's exactly what we were just saying. We wished more people would reach out because... I used to work in entertainment and music and reaching out to press is something they and their press agents and their record companies and publishers do all the time. But our publishers don't and our journals don't have us doing those things. And it's nothing that's why that we we're trained it. to do. So yeah, that's, <laughs> that's why we do it. And that's why we do it for you. So let's back up then a little bit. You said you're going through another career transition, but let's start off at the beginning of the career. How did you come to be the extroverted scientist you are. What was your path like? Extroversion 
probably has many, many explanations, but, and I'm not going to go into that one, but science came early to me because uh, I was a very curious kid. I grew up, and I'm going to date myself, I grew up watching the nature documentaries, and I was particularly fond of Jacques Cousteau, and I was fascinated by marine mammals. I was growing up in the outskirts of Buenos Aires. I'm from Argentina originally. And so, you know, lived in, in Buenos Aires, suburbia is not very exciting from, from science or nature's perspective. Uh, also, I was kind of a, I was growing up in a lower middle class ho- household. So my opportunities to do anything exciting on, on, in terms of science and nature were very, very limited. So it, it was kind of a pipe dream. And I never liked cities. So when I turned 18, I looked for different careers. And acting looked like, it didn't seem like I would have any chance. And chatting with my dad, he said, if you want to start studying uh, acting and then don't like it, and try to go into science, it's going to be hard because once you're out of high school, getting into university, you're going to lose the gym, brain gymnastics, if you wish. But if you do it the other way around, if you start with science and then try to do acting, it's going to be a lot easier. And thanks to the fact that Argentina University is free, I was able to attend the university. And for that, I went to Patagonia, a small city called Puerto Madryn, over the Atlantic shore and there I study marine mammal biology with a specialty on female reproductive ecology. That's where I started to get really, really interested in female reproductive ecology. And as I was studying female reproductive ecology, I started to think about women. <laughs> I was in my young twenties and, and I was thinking of women in, in many, many ways. And one was as and this may sound awkward, but as, as an object of study. But I, you know, I was studying elephant seals at the time, and female elephant seals have a very particular reproductive ecology. And I started to naturally draw comparisons. And, you know, why, why do women ovulate every, now we know it's 29 days, but, you know, at the time, 28 days. And why don't they have an obvious estrus? And my head exploded with questions. And I started to try to read about women's reproductive ecology. And at the time, there was very, very little. It was Peter Ellison and Jim Wood. And Beverly Strassman was started to work on it. Bobby Lowe. A number of people. And I don't want to start listing them up because I will forget many. And so I apologize to those that I didn't mention so far. But there were not that many. And so most of what we knew about women's reproduction came from the medical literature. And Mm -hmm. it seemed to me at that time that MDs were looking at women as if they were broken by the sign. And everything was a pathology to to the texts that I was reading at the time. Well, for me, a miscarriage was the result of, in, in many cases, of an adaptation to these people was a, a pathology. Right. And hypothalamic amenorrhea was always considered a pathology. And in other mammals, it's just part of their mm-hmm. reproductive life cycle. And it's an adaptation not to be pregnant when there's not enough resources, so for whatever reason. And so I thought, 
that was fascinating. When I finished my first degree, it's called a licenciado degree, I started to think about you know, how to continue my career. And, and that's when I thought, well, I have to learn English. I was 24 and I could not speak a word in this beautiful language. And not only that, I had no money, but I saved enough money over a couple of summers. It was, you know, Argentina is a crazy, 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 crazy country in so many ways. And at that time, the dollar and the peso were one to one. And I had a good summers where I, I created my own little companies, but I was able to save enough money for a flight and for two months of English as a second language school in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I chose that because not only was it a really good school, but also because it was across the street from Harvard University. And that's where Pete Ellison was. So I went there, I studied English for two months, and I started knocking on everybody's doors. Peter was the first one, but, uh, and he was super kind. I still have a library research assistant card that he gave me. You know, this is many years ago, so there were no PDFs. So I had to Xerox everything. I thought that was going to be my one and only trip to the United States. And I had to take full advantage. So I fill up a huge piece of luggage that was completely overweighted when I came back to Argentina, had to pay all my savings to transport that thing. But that was thanks to Peter that gave me that card. Mm. And then the other person that opened the door for me was Irv DeVoer, Man the Hunter. And to be honest, I had no idea who Irv DeVoer was. But Irv DeVoer was super nice to me and opened not only the door of his office, but he invited me to stay at his house. He was turning Mm. 60 and he said, if you want a career in anthropology, you can come to my 60th birthday. I'm going to invite everybody that who is anybody and you will meet them all. And you can talk with them and see who you like and who you can interact with. He was getting ready to retire. He was not accepting you. But at that birthday party, I met everybody. <laughs> I mean, people who I would have never dreamed of meeting. Ernst Mayer, Bob Trevers, David Hay, who was my complete and absolute <laughs> idol, Bobby Lowe and Rick Briviesca, who was <laughs> Irv DeVore's teaching assistant. And Rick was a super important guy in my career. He's always been supportive and gave me advice and he speaks Spanish. So it was super important. But two people who also were super nice were Martin Daly and Margot Wilson, Canadian people, evolutionary psychologists who worked at McMaster. And I don't know how I did it, but I convinced them to invite me over to, to visit them there. And I did. And once I was there, I told them, I, I would love to work with you. They were working on homicide, particularly infanticide. And I love the topic. It's a little bit different from what I was doing. But in any case, working with them would have been a dream. But they said, I, we don't have money to support you and I didn't have any money of my own. They ended up suggesting that I applied to the University of Michigan where they had friends and that was Beverly Strassman, Bobby Lowe and Dick Alexander. Three different departments. I applied to the three of them and they uh, accepted me in anthropology and for Beverly Strassman and the School of Natural Resources and Environment with Bobby Lowe, you know, to do human and Dick Alexander was nice enough to tell me, Pablo, 
I would love to have you, but the Department of Biology here is sick and tired of me getting students <laughs> that work on humans. We, they don't yeah. want to fund any more students that work with humans. So you come over, I'll have you as a research assistant and I'll support you in any way I can. But Bobby and Beverly are big mentors. So I work with both of them. When were you there, Pablo? Ooh, you really want to date me now. No, uh, it's okay because I'm a University of Michigan undergrad alum. So I'm quite curious. Oh, maybe you were. <laughs> I know, I'm curious. <laughs> um, when was I there? Uh, let me think. I graduated in 2005 and it took me like nine years. So let's see, 1996 to okay. 1996 to 2005? Yeah. So we did overlap. Wow, Cara. For three years, we overlapped in University of Michigan. And did you take any, like, Milford Wolpoff, Milford, John Matoni, ITA for them. You were never my TA. Uh, Jeremy De Silva was like a TA with, uh, because Laura McClatchy was there, but she may have come oh. after you left. Now I'm trying to think. Yeah, yeah, Lara, yeah. But, she came after I left. Yeah. yeah, but no, that's crazy. The Michigan difference, Chris, it comes up again. I uh, know, it's <laughs> the node. <laughs> the node, so many Michigan connections. Awesome. So you told us that you are, the word you used is molting into a new kind of scientist. Would you mind explaining, one, why you chose that word, uh, and two, what you're changing into? Why did I choose that word? Because that's how it feels. It feels that basically, it, intellectually, ideas start to form in our brains slowly. And, mm. and it takes us a while to figure out their shape, their texture, their flavor, their mm. color. And then some event brings them up, right? So mm. that's the way I feel about it. And I feel that there are several things that are brewing in my head right now. And as I get older, I think, okay, what do I want to do and how do I want to do it? And when I was studying elephant seals, the way I saw science was I have to be as objective as I can. I cannot marry any idea and I cannot marry any results and I cannot go out there and state anything in any kind of definitive tone because I just don't know. All I have is my observations at a particular time in a particular population. And I was always extremely cautious. And I was taught, particularly later when I did my postdoc in epidemiology, I was taught to not speculate, just state what you find and let other people put it into context. And I did that for a very long time. And then almost two and a half years ago, I started working with the Nunchalnuth Tribal Council. It's a council that nucleates 14 uh, First Nations in the island of Vancouver. And I did that because I have a very strong sense of social responsibility and I felt that, you know, I've been working with Guatemalan, Kachikel, Mayan groups for 20 years, and it seemed only logical that I would try to do the same with indigenous people from the country that received me so warmly and kindly. And working with the Nunchalnuth, I realized that I profited from studying a group of people pursuing my own interests 
my own questions using my own methods and without intending to do so i was perpetuating a colonial way of doing science that was not there to serve the populations that i studied and it was a shock to me the nunchalus people were extremely kind and generous and patient with me but those conversations made me realize that i wasn't proud of the approach i took in guatemala and to be fair i don't think that any of my guatemalan friends and participants ever said anything to me about those approaches but now i started conversations with many of them and in during those conversations i realized that what i was doing wasn't right and they realized that what i was doing was not right and so we are changing the way that project is going in guatemala and it's all informed by the work i'm doing with the nunchalness here and all these brewing intellectual brewing made me realize that i had abandoned a part of my being that was that is extremely political and is extremely concerned and committed with inequities uh, committed with obviously reducing inequities and this all of these happened in the context of me going from studying how stress affects women's reproductive function into how stress affects child development from before conception during gametogenesis and so within that context everything came together it's like okay i need to be working in the service of the populations that i work with because they are not just and i want to come back to how i viewed women at the beginning of of my interest in my scientific interest in women seeing them as an object of study and now that applied to everything else i did and now i realize well they're not objects of study they're they're living just with an interest and i cannot just profit from that without giving back and not only that i had to become a tool to these people because these are people and they're not elephant seals they're not something that has to be only under microscope these are individuals that want to be on the other side of the microscope and i have the social responsibility to help them look through that microscope and i need particularly if i'm working with marginalized groups i need to empower those groups and the way to empower those groups is to understand the origins of this enfranchisement they they have been subjected to right and so perhaps by focusing on child development with them i can say this comes from my participation in the doha field so for those that don't know there's a field that now is probably about three decades old or a little bit more called developmental origins of health and disease and what it looks at is how different exposures affect development and so if i can work with the participants of these studies to optimize development because we are trying to work from a position of strength rather than deficits if we can optimize development in marginalized populations mm-hmm. then we can reduce the inequities that keeps them there we can try to break this cycle of poverty marginalization stigmatization that many individuals in those groups 
are facing nowadays and have faced for hundreds of years. If you don't mind, I want to just pause a second and dig a little deeper on this. I have a sense that I understand what you're talking about as a researcher myself who works with native populations, and I have my own questions. And I was just at a session at the AAAS on the Indigenous Science Project, which is out of British Columbia. And it was by Alison Wiley, who's a philosopher there, whose job is to problematize and critique the scientific agendas. So I'm, I'm wondering if you can give us an example of what you were studying or what you were doing that was for your profit, not for them. Just to give us a little bit more of a, a sense of what it is you're saying. Absolutely. I appreciate that question, Chris. So my research agenda was built around the study of what are the mechanisms by which women's reproductive access modulates reproductive events. And so that led me to study the effects of physiologic stress on ovarian function and uh, gestation, etc. To me, that topic is fascinating. You know, if you have 12 cycles, 11 cycles in a, in a year, how does your body decide which cycle goes on to becoming a, an actual conception and which of those conceptions continue to be fetuses and then babies? And it was fascinating. And I published papers that, you know, were read by many people. And I built my career based on that. Because I, I'm a very emotional person, I, while doing that, I became friends with the people in the villages where I lived and work. But my research was never about what they were interested in, mm. right? They participated because I'm a nice guy. I'm very personable. Probably they see me as a f source of resources, not just economic resources, but probably political resources, because whenever they have a problem, they know I'm going to be siding with them and trying to figure out how do we solve this problem, particularly in a society like Guatemala, where indigenous people are completely marginalized. So a white guy in North America, I'm a Latino, but in Guatemala, I'm a white guy. Right. And, you know, I'm taller, I'm whiter, I'm educated. So they know. And, and I'm pushy. And so they know that if they need X, I'm going to go fight with whoever is the authority that needs to be providing X. But that's on the social, personal level. My research was never designed in its origins to solve any of their concerns or problems. Mm. I even participate in committees to reduce infant mortality because I work in a collaboration with the Guatemalan public health system. And whenever they ask me something, I say yes, and I participate and I try to help. I go back and I talk about my results with medical officers, with public health officers, and with the community members. But the questions were never posed by community members. The methods were not chosen by community members. I always paid attention to what the community members like or dislike within methods, right? Ideally, I should be waiting women on a hospital gown so that the way they're dressing that day doesn't affect the weight measurements. The first year, they didn't say anything. The second year, they said, you know, we don't like this. So we stopped. That's it. You know, you don't like it. And who am I to push you? But what I'm doing now is uh, with the Nunchalen, we wrote the grant together from the ground up 
where we consulted with every community about the kind of questions they wanted to ask, the kind of methods they wanted to be used, the people they wanted involved, and we are adhering to the OCAP principles, right? Mm. And so now in Guatemala, we are going to do that. And we have a female community leader that is studying law and is going to create an ethics committee for the community, mm. right? That's the kind of thing that in the last three years, it's just it's been an internal revolution. You know, thank God for my students that are young people who see this and support it and sometimes push it. And this has happened to me in, in many issues. You know, as, as we grow older, and I see a lot of our colleagues that are older that are taken aback because we are taught that, you know, ego is first. So if somebody tells us that we are wrong or we are doing something wrong, the first line of defend, right? And so I take the opposite approach. I'm completely willing to say, you know what? I messed up. And I messed up many times in my life and I'm going to continue to mess up. And it's totally fine. It's rare for anybody, for any human being to get things right on the first try. And this whole idea that we have to get it right from the beginning and it's really pervasive and I think it's really damaging and I think it's affecting politics in North America and all over the world. And I think that we need to take a humility bath and accept that we will get it wrong most of the time and that we can only build better when we understand that we are doing something wrong. You've done something really interesting, Pablo. One, you've basically given us two academics episode in one, but you also, it's a callback to an episode, the first episode we did with Alex Bruce and talking about how her work in India has been very, very successful, but only because of bringing everybody in the community that she's working with into the development and the implementation of that well, project. And Nikki Holly said the same Nikki thing Holly about her well. work with Samoan populations mm -hmm. and making sure they have ownership of the entire process and mm -hmm. not just going at the end and telling them what you found. Yeah, so this has been a theme that's come up again and again. But unfortunately, I am going to take a turn <laughs> in our conversation to get us to the other part of what we had originally planned uh, with this episode. And because it was specifically asked by my graduate student. So I talked with Chris in the beginning in the introduction that my graduate student is an international student. She's from Luxembourg. Uh, and when we were talking about the podcast, she had asked specifically for there to be a academics about being an international student in North America or United States in a PhD program, and basically looking for advice, not only for international students, but those of us who are mentoring international students. And I know you've been on both sides of that coin, so I would love to hear your take on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a super important subject. I would say for the students, I mean, obviously, everybody's experience is going to be different. I can only talk to a male student from the south of South America. My experience was I grew academically up without any resources at all. The library of the university I attended was smaller than my office <laughs> at the time. I, I kid you not. It was thanks to the researchers from the research institute next door that I had access to the bibliography and, and to their beautiful brains magnificent people. So when I first arrived in North America, what blew up 
my mind was resources. Resources everywhere, from literature to funding to go to the field. And again, I can only talk to experience in Michigan and then later at you know, one of the institutes of the NIH as a postdoc. Resources were everywhere for me, but because I grew up in such a, a scarcity, I was very good at turning rocks and finding the resources I needed. I got so good that getting little internal grants that the anthropology department asked me a couple of times to give seminars to other students, even mm. domestic students, as to where to look for resources. And there's not a specific place. You have to basically turn rocks to find it. So Michigan has the Rackham School of Grass Studies that has a lot of resources. And to me, that was mind-blowing. The other thing that I would suggest to international people, talk to people before you go to an institution, choose carefully your mentors because mentors are critically important. Some scientists are fantastic scientists, but they're not necessarily mm -hmm. the best mentors because they are really focused on productivity. And for an international student, it takes time to understand the cultural context, to really speak the language fluently and understand what's going on. I made many, I still make many cultural faux pas all the time. My friends know it by now and laugh and it's fine with me, but a couple of instances were not fun at all. So an international student is usually somebody that is extremely interested in doing what they want to do. Usually are, are the very best in their countries and that's why they have any chance if you're going to have any chance to be accepted in a north american university you have to be better than the domestic students because it's much easier to get funding for the domestic students so if you're getting an international student you're going to get a really good student but on the other hand it's a student that doesn't have the cultural and language skills that he or she will need from the get-go so if you're going to accept national students, you need to have the time and resources to support them. I'm grad director, so I'm going through that now, and there are great prospects, but knowing that there's more investment that's got to be made for those students and worrying about their mesh with the culture and their ability to succeed, it's far more difficult because of our more limited experience working with some of the international students and because as you pointed out, every single one is different and has a different background. There's no easy way to predict their success. It's, it's harder to pick a good application from among international students than it is to see you know, from US students, which we're used to seeing over and over again. Right, but there's one strategy that we are using here at Simon Fraser that is creating networks. I have students from Bangladesh and Brazil right now. And I have had students from Guatemala. You know, I, made it, I have made a point of accepting grads, international grad students is my way of paying forward. Mm -hmm. The way I do it is first, I welcome them into my house and my family. That's mm -hmm. for sure. And then I try to create connections between them and other international students, as well as domestic students. You know, it's always great to have a students in one physical location. If you have a lab, if you have even a dry lab, that's the best setting for all students, but particularly for grad students. That's really good advice. 
I sort of do some of those things intuitively already. And then we're thinking about our listening public as well. People who are looking to be better mentors, as you say, because this series is both for graduate students and people trying to navigate as junior professors in the academy. But as you point out, a lot of scientists aren't great mentors, but no one has trained us to be mentors. We're looking for these pieces of advice that can help us make fewer mistakes, which can be costly for these students. We learn more from making mistakes than from doing everything right the first time, but it's hard to make a mistake that ends up costing someone else. Yeah, the stakes are a lot higher when somebody else's career is kind of in your hands. Well, yeah. On the other hand, it's hard to screw up so badly that you screw up somebody's career. The main thing is that they choose the right project. And a good project for a student is always a project with a couple of fail-safe, right? Yeah. If their main hypothesis doesn't work as it shouldn't most of the Mm -hmm. time, there are alternative things that they can do with the data they collect. So I have a question to sort of link up what we were talking about before with where we're going with maybe with international students, but with students in general, right? So you mentioned as you've gone through your molting that the newer students, the newer generation, get to see your example of how Mm. you're now creating projects from scratch that involve full buy-in, full participation in the community. So it's it's almost a two-part question. One, is it because you're tenured and you have the time to develop a project slowly instead of rushing it to get papers out, that you're able to do that? And are your students sample and do the same thing? Or are they somehow constrained by the, the necessities of being a grad student and needing to produce things that they are then forced to take the same shortcuts to be scientifically objective and answer their own questions like we did? Because I think the same is true of the work I've done. I see myself mm-hmm. going through a very similar process that you've described. Certainly, being tenure gives you the freedoms that actually were meant to give you, right? Now, I would say that, particularly in anthropology, but in all disciplines, I think that we need to revise how we give tenure. Mm. Because if we don't do that, we cannot blame researchers and professors. I mean, the system is such that now it's really about productivity, but in a way that is sometimes detrimental to quality. And we all know that. And I think that there are alternatives to that. I think that, you know, I'm in the Faculty of Health Sciences here. And it's a, it's a non-departmentalized faculty where we have from social scientists to molecular scientists all in one faculty. And so it's a new faculty starting in 2005. And we had to come up with our own tenure and promotion committee and our own tenure and promotion terms of reference. And I think that we have done an amazing job, to be honest. And, hmm. and so we have accepted the fact that different disciplines have different needs and there are different demands that can be placed on people working on those disciplines. And I think that anthropology needs to understand the new paradigm and anthropology departments all over the place need to start asking, not just accepting, but asking from professors and students that they take their, the communities they work with into consideration and that they adhere to OCAP principles. And I think the most 
departments are doing it that uh, you know one way or the other and so if we are able to create a safe environment for students i think that it's going to be a lot easier to move in that direction and then when we review our colleagues that are going for tenure and promotion with that lens then i think that we can we can all do better yeah but that's my long answer no, it makes, it makes, <laughs> no, it makes sense to me i'm thinking through our own process and i think we are when we're given the leisure or luxury or latitude by our administrators because it also matters above us for departments when they're developing their tenure and promotion criteria and that the college level TMP committees take those decisions and those processes into account. I know not all of our institutions are equally blessed with higher order beings that feel that the lower order beings know what they're doing. Right, Kara? Maybe so. Yeah. There's definitely a, a different structure where the the higher order, let's, I like this, the higher order beings, I feel like that might be giving them too much, um, have no clue what's actually going on on the ground, both in the classrooms and in the research landscape and in the funding landscape. There's a huge disconnect these days. And it's ever more important for departments to fight for what they do know is going on the ground to accurately support and represent what's happening in the field. No, I completely agree with that. Yeah, and it's up to us to push, you know? Mm -hmm. It's change doesn't happen if nothing changes, so. Yeah, yeah that's right. You can't be uh, fighting, tilting windmills all the time, Pablo. What do you do for fun? We always ask this question. We, we used to say work-life balance, but there's really no such thing as that. But work-life and interaction, what else do you do? For fun, I'm not very good at having a balanced life, but. We hear that a lot. Yeah. But I work and fight towards my tendency to work all the time. And I have the feeling that I'm always behind. <laughs> but uh, that being said, what I try to do is when I finally take time off, I really take time off. I mm. go to one of the islands here. You know, I live in a gorgeous place. So I just take off. And I go to one of the islands that have no cell reception, no email, no anything. Sometimes not even electricity. And I, you know, I have a family. I am married to a cultural anthropologist, believe it or not. And we have two kids, 15 and 13. And those are wonderful ages. Once you tie them up and <laughs> in their no. It's, <laughs> I have three teenagers, so I'm with you, I know. <laughs> yeah, so, but I really, really love spending time with them. When things work out, it's the thing I enjoy the most. And so I try to go skiing every Sunday in the winter because here it's accessible because we are surrounded by ski runs and we have a dog. And so we, we do what families do. We, we go to soccer on Saturdays and we walk the dog every day in the morning and in the afternoon. And in the summer we go camping and we all love fly fishing, which is, hmm. no, it's, not necessarily being nice to the fish because you are poking them, but we release most of what we catch and we use barbless hooks. And so we are, we are mean, but in the nicest possible way. Um, we, That's like the story of my personality. That is my personality yeah. encapsulated. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and so we, we do a lot of camping. We do a lot of trekking. You know, fly fishing is a wonderful 
thing to do because you're by yourself or with your family in the river or with a friend and there's nothing that I love better than a, a nice morning with the steam coming out of the river and that to me is just fantastic and you know I I read a lot you know I go travel to Argentina whenever I can to mm. see friends and family it sounds like you're living the dream you know yeah. I, I, we all have similar stories in our you know, I can't speak for everyone or all of our guests, but as uh, someone with, with kids and the dog and my father taught me to fly fish, I can relate to all of those things. It's, and we were just in Vancouver for the, the AAAs and it was yeah. gorgeous. Like, I just got back from Seattle, which reminded me of how much yeah. I like Vancouver. So It's just lovely. It's a beautiful place, but it's getting a little bit too dense. It's mm. funny from somebody that moved only 10 years ago, but it's... Every time I, it, I'm reminded of a cartoon in The New Yorker that said it's a couple of backpackers and they arrive. It's a gorgeous forest with a gorgeous lake. And she looks at him and says, honey, look, what a great place to put a city on. <laughs> That's how it feels. And that exactly. is what happens. Uh, so we know you are active on Twitter. Would you mind sharing your handle and maybe any other way that folks might be able to get a hold of you if they want to talk to you about your work? Sure. I am active on Twitter. You just look for my name, Pablo Nepomnaschi. And I don't know, you, you want me to spell that? <laughs> no, it'll be in the program It'll be in the notes. show notes. Yeah, Excellent. we're good. So we'll, just, we'll let them have some fun. Yeah. <laughs> And then I also have a website that is completely out of date. Uh, <laughs> I haven't updated it in the last two years. I have a research gate. And you can always find me through email. Email is the best way to reach me. We'll put that well, in the we, show notes as well. We really appreciate you taking the time out to talk to us today. And it sounds like in the future, when you have some more work coming out, we can talk in more specifics yeah. about the project and the role of all the people in it and what their community-led initiatives have produced. We'd, we'd love to hear more. We think it's important to recognize research that's changing in these directions and words. More words. <laughs> right. Pablo, thank you so much again for being on The Sausage of Science. Thank you very much, guys, for having me. <laughs>